This is a sermon from the Highlands Congregation of Park Church. We hope it helps you walk with the Lord and lead others to Christ. Learn more and find more resources at parkchurch.org. Good morning. Our scripture reading for today is from Matthew 8, starting in verse 18 through verse 22. That's Matthew 8, 18 through 22. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me go first and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Amanda. Good morning, everyone. Uh, first, I just want to give a shout out to uh, all the people that are here in the building. Uh, it's, it was, you braved the storm. It's pretty incredible. Uh, also to our volunteers and the team who's here in downtown. I think... Uh, yeah, really grateful. I'm praying that you'll have a safe drive home or safe walk home for those that walked here. Safe walk home as well. For those that are joining us online, thank you for joining us. Hope you enjoy the day. If you live in Colorado, you have to in some ways appreciate the snow. It's beautiful and it's a, it's a beautiful morning. I hope you're able to enjoy it and stay warm and safe. Uh, we are getting into one of my favorite passages uh, in the New Testament. And uh, it's one of those passages that kind of is a little bit of a gut punch, but in the best kind of way. And so we need to pray, ask the Holy Spirit to help us this morning. Uh, also going to be praying downtown. They're meeting downtown, worshiping Jesus. Miguel's preaching on how the gospel shapes our worship this morning. And, uh, and so I want to pray for them as well as we continue to lean into what it means to be one church and two congregations. Also, the other churches around the city, we're so grateful for the things that God's doing here. And let's pray that God would work in powerful ways among us. I'm Holy Spirit. Uh, we are here on a snowy morning, and as the snows fall from heaven, uh, we consider uh, the reality that you are so much bigger and more magnificent than we can understand. I think of Isaiah talking about these storehouses of snow, and you are the one who keeps them and dumps them out on this world, and we see your beauty and your glory and your abundance. And so I pray you'd help us through the different seasons of life to see and appreciate your glory. Um, but also that we be attentive to the things you're doing in the world, in us, through us, and around us. And so we pray all around the city as men and women and children gather in buildings and in homes uh, all around the city that you would pour out your spirit in fresh ways. Um, that we would see the joy of what it means to follow you, what it means to walk with the God of the universe, to know your love, to be saturated with your love, to abide in your love, and then to reflect that love back to you and to those around us in this world. We want to participate in the beautiful thing you're doing to establish your kingdom, the kingdom of heaven on earth, and we pray that you would do powerful things in us and through us through your word this morning. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Um, I've always been a proponent of the sort of saying that everything worth doing comes with a cost. 
Uh, the idea of like everything that's kind of like worth doing, everything that kind of feels like it matters and has significance, there's, there's a cost to it. It's not easy. There's always difficulty in it. Sometimes the kind of leaning into the difficult things actually make you feel and taste the goodness and the beauty of the things you get to participate in, whether it's uh, a meal that you've spent a long time cooking, those ones are more enjoyed, or if it's thinking about working out and, uh, and what you feel after the pain of working out, or whether it's kind of saving up money to go on a vacation and the kind of enjoyment after the hard work of being budgeted and disciplined and you're spending, whatever it is, uh, the good things in life often come at a cost. Uh, if you want to be in shape, it's not easy. You can't just kind of like wake up in the morning and do whatever you want to do. Like I think about that often. Uh, what I want to do every morning and what I do pretty much every morning is sleep as late as I can uh, before I have to get up and start kind of like doing the things I want to do. And the idea of Waking up earlier is a difficult thing that's like never what I want. And part of that is because the night before, often what would have been better is to go to sleep earlier, get a better night's sleep, but instead I made the easy decision to stay up a little bit later and kind of press into it. And so it's the easy things that often take away from us uh, the really beautiful things. Same thing with children. I think about having, if you want to have healthier, thriving children, it's not the easy way. The easy way of not caring what they do, the easy way of like iPad parenting kind of thing. I have a friend who once talked about writing a book called Armchair Parenting, How to Raise Your Voice and Lower Your Expectations. Uh, and it's like, it's a way you could do it. It's easier, uh, but you'll feel the loss of that in the long haul. You'll feel the loss of it in the long haul. If you want thriving children, you have to do the hard work of being present with them. You have to do the hard work of showing them love and authority. You have to be present with them. You have to show love. You have to show authority. And often it's not the easiest way forward. If you want to have financial health in life, you have to be disciplined with the things you spend. You can't keep stretching your budget over and over, or overspending or opening up another credit card. If you want to enjoy the beautiful things in life, often it comes at a cost. Often. And, and this is true in the way we think about discipleship. In fact, the passage here is known kind of in its broader context. People refer to it as a passage that's dealing with the cost of discipleship. Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. And it's that following Jesus comes at a cost. And it doesn't mean you have to strive or earn or perform to get his love. But it's when you see his love and you see the glory and the treasure that walking in his love is, it means you must put Jesus first. And that's the place that Jesus demands to have in the life of his disciples, that disciples of Jesus are called to put Jesus first. There's a trend within Christianity, and the Apostle Paul talked about it in 2 uh, Timothy chapter 4, that people will begin to kind of like gather around themselves teachers who will teach them the things that their itching ears want to hear. In other words, we will kind of have this proclivity or this inclination to gravitate towards the kind of messaging and the voices and the teachings that just make us feel good, that kind of tell us what we want to hear. And the gospel truth is actually sharper than that. That Jesus, when he begins to gather bigger and bigger crowds, he often has his most challenging and demanding statements about what it truly means to follow him. And this passage in Matthew chapter 8 is one of those kind of quintessential passages where a, a crowd begins to gather because they see the, the glory and the beauty and the compelling, inviting nature of what Jesus has come to do. And as the crowds begin to grow, 
Jesus begins to lean into some of the sharpest and hardest and most demanding statements that he makes to his followers. And so my hope for us this morning is that we'd actually see the beauty of this invitation. We'd actually kind of capture a vision of the good life that Jesus offers. It would make us eager to joyfully surrender the things that hold us back from following him. That we would eagerly, joyfully surrender the things that hold us back from following him with our true heart. If you truly want abundant life, you have to put Jesus first. And so here's what we're gonna do this morning. We're gonna look through this passage and see three things. We're gonna see the compelling vision of discipleship, asking ourselves this question, do you actually see and are you compelled by Jesus's vision for life? Are you compelled by it? Do you want to follow him? Is his teaching and his restorative works and his vision for the world something that's grabbing you and gripping you, making you desire to follow him? Do you see the compelling vision for life? Secondly, do you understand the cost of discipleship? Do you understand the cost of discipleship? And the third question that we'll look at is, do you actually hear the call to joyfully surrender? Joyfully is an operative word, to joyfully surrender the things that hold us back from following Jesus. And this is all right here in the passage, so keep your Bible open. We're in Matthew chapter 8, and, uh, and I'm just going to kind of dive into the beginning. Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 18. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. Uh, to get the context, Jesus has been healing. We open the story with Jesus healing the leper and cleansing the leper, showing his compassion and his love and his ability to wash away and cleanse us from our shame and the things that stigmatize us and make us feel separate from the presence of God and from the presence of his people. Jesus moves near to people, shows them compassion and love, cleansing them, saying, I see you, I know you, I love you, I'm not put off by you. And he reaches and brings cleansing, saying, you're mine, reconciling us to the Father and to his people. And then Jesus heals the centurion's servant through this word from a distance, showing his power to heal, but also to bring Gentiles into the kingdom and to reconcile diverse people groups and perspectives, to reconcile people that have experienced the brokenness of this world in conflicting and even competing ways, bringing people into his beautiful kingdom. And then at the kind of last section, it says Jesus was going through all of this area, healing Peter's mother-in-law and many, many people who had sickness and diseases. And so I want you to get the feel for what's happening. He's been sitting on a mountain, teaching the way of the kingdom. And now for however many days this is, is just walking around and bringing restoration to everyone who comes near to him. I mean, if you imagine the buzz of somebody coming into Denver, you hear this story that they're teaching this new way of life and it's compelling and you start listening and paying attention and then, and then you start watching this person like, man, their, their vision for life, the things they're teaching are, are compelling and there's an authority and a wisdom and, and, and a nature to it that's just inviting me in and now I'm watching that person and he's touching people and they're being healed and he's speaking and people are being redeemed and restored and he's bringing people together. And it's like this big crowd begins to gather. And when Jesus sees that crowd, he doesn't think like, oh good, this is the crowd I want and now's the time to kind of like heal everybody here and do everything. He actually, in the face of that crowd, decides to move and sail across to the other side of the sea to do something else. And we're gonna see what that is next week. But it's that move, that geographical move, I'm gonna withdraw from this big crowd and I'm gonna go across the sea is the context for this moment because there are two different people, two characters who see Jesus leaving and they are compelled by something about him and they want to follow him. 
They want to follow him. They see something about this man and what he's come to do that makes them want to follow him. So this is the first question that we want to ask is, do you see the compelling vision of discipleship? Do you see it? Uh, the characters in this story are, are ready to go. They've got hesitations, they've got questions, but something about Jesus is inviting. Something about him is compelling. I think we can sometimes think of Christianity as a system of rules, or maybe it's something your parents raised you up in, and so you've always done it. And it's not supposed to be driven by that. It's supposed to be driven by this, this compelling vision that Jesus gives us to say, follow me, and I'm going to lead you to life. So what, what is that vision? I think the most kind of basic way that I'm understanding, and I think the Bible unpacks Jesus' vision is that he came to restore everything that's been broken in the world. He came to help you be exactly who you're designed to be. And I don't say that in any sort of like post-Christian cliche. I mean that with all seriousness. Jesus came into this world to help humanity become who they were always designed to be. That he is the one who's come to humanize, rehumanize humanity. That because of human sin and brokenness, there's brokenness inside of us, emotional, psychological things. There's sinful inclinations and desires that run contrary to God's design for the world. That leads to brokenness in relationships and systems and societies and across the world. And Jesus came to restore everything that's been broken by sin, to reconcile us to the love of God, which actually brings healing from the inside out. Human beings were designed to actually live in relationship to God, to enjoy his love, to walk in the freedom of secure covenant love, to know that you are designed by the creator of the universe, designed by him exactly as he made you, and that he designed you and said, it's really, really good. And in our brokenness, we turn away from that design, and Jesus came to turn us back, that we'd actually be restored by that love and experience healing. It's beautiful, and so the kind of invitation to follow Jesus is the invitation to experience this power of God to help you become who you were made to be. It's not supposed to be a begrudging duty. It's not supposed to be kind of an overwhelming task. It's not supposed to be something that feels like it's laden with guilt and shame. It's supposed to be an invitation for all humans across the face of this world to turn to Jesus as he helps us be who we're designed to be, and as he brings restoration to everything that's been broken in the world. So to me, the kind of longings in society right now, the longings you feel in your own life and that your neighbor feels and that your coworker feels and your grandparent or your grandchild feels, the longings that they feel are a longing to actually be human and this is what Jesus came to do. And so if we continue to kind of walk with him and experience the healing power of his love and his grace, it's powerful. And people were seeing that in the ministry of Jesus. They were seeing he was speaking in a way and acting in a way that was making sense of everything their heart was feeling, everything that they were desiring. It was like something about him had this gravitational pull, and they were leaning in. And so the question that we have to ask is, what is it about Jesus for you that's compelling? There are aspects of Jesus' ministry that are different. He, he's healing. He brings forgiveness. He wipes away shame. He pursues justice. He speaks truth. He speaks grace. He speaks love and compassion, and he does it with wisdom. And what is it about him that's just for you and your experience in this world that's inviting you and say something about him? I want to follow him. I want to follow Jesus. Because if you don't have that why, if you don't have that desire, then the sort of 
cost of discipleship is going to make no sense. It's basic, like, the best, most healthiest kind of, healthiest kind of, like, sales or marketing strategy is saying, I, I see a problem in the world, something that's broken, something that could be better, something that needs help, and I've created this product or this service to help. And so marketing is saying, hey, this thing that, uh, that you feel and you experience is a real brokenness. This thing that I can provide is going to ameliorate or it's going to help in some way, kind of assuage that brokenness or redeem that brokenness or restore that brokenness, or it's going to help things move forward in some way. And there's a cost to it. There's a cost to it. But the most healthy kinds of marketing are saying the cost that needs to be paid is not comparable to the gain of the outcome. Right? Like it's worth paying this cost for the outcome. And so the question I always want to think about when we're talking about following Jesus is, is if you're not compelled by him, by his presence, his love, his forgiveness, his grace, then the cost will feel like duty. It'll feel like drudgery. It'll feel like obligation that's crushing. So are you compelled by Jesus? I think he's the most compelling human in the history of the world. Spend time with him, read the gospels, watch him engage, and let him invite you to follow him. Now, when he invites you, it's important to know that there's a cost. There's a cost to discipleship. That's where the heart of the passage goes. It says, and a scribe came to Jesus, and he said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Like you're going across the sea, I've watched you, I've heard you teach, I've watched you heal, wherever you're going, get me in the boat, I want to be with you. Like, and you can imagine the scene, right? Some people are already kind of attached to Jesus, he's called some of his disciples, they're hopping in the boat with him, and he's like, I want in the boat, like, I just want to be around you, I love what you're saying, I love what you're doing, I'm all about the Jesus stuff, I'm I'm in, I'm in, wherever you go, I love this. It feels good, it resonates with things I'm kind of longing for, it's exciting, and, and so he's like leaning in, and what Jesus says to him is super Jesus-y, which is like cryptic and weird. Um, and so he says this, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He's saying, hey, animals that are kind of forging their way through the world have comforts that I do not promise my disciples. In fact, what my disciples are going to experience will be the loss of certain comforts, certain worldly desires, certain securities that many people in this world have come to spend almost all of their energy trying to accrue and acquire and accumulate. We, we often try to gain some sense of security, some sense of stability in life, and once we have security and stability, which actually isn't in our society, like kind of fiscally, economically, for many, many people, a basic level of security isn't like an incredibly challenging thing for so many people in our society. For some, it is. For some, it is. For many, it's not. But even once you gain the basic securities of life, what we tend to do is then say, now I just want to sort of upgrade my lifestyle and, and begin to accumulate more and more comforts. And, and again, pick your poison, whatever you want them to be. It can be more and more vacations. It can be a better and bigger house. It can be a better and nicer career. It can be more freedom, more structure, more discipline, more simplicity, more abundance, whatever it is. And, and you kind of lean into like trying to continue to upgrade that lifestyle, to build the comforts. And what Jesus is saying is following me will require surrendering those ambitions. It doesn't necessarily mean that all of those things are wrong. But he's saying, I'm not promising my disciples any of those securities or any 
of those comforts. And then the second one comes up to him and it says, and another disciple said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Um, it's a, there's a lot of debate on this passage because of how strong Jesus' response is uh, about what the person's asking about wanting to bury their father. In sort of Judaism in the first century, the idea of burying a deceased relative was a kind of obligation. It was even like legally required, culturally required, to have a burial within 24 hours. Uh, many people have found, and you actually see this language used in other settings with parents that are not yet deceased, and it's sort of a colloquial term to say, let me kind of like continue to stay present with my family until my parents kind of die and retire and give their inheritance, and I bury them and kind of finish that generation, and then I'm all in for you, Jesus, and then I'm going to follow you. There's debate. Uh, either way, the response of Jesus is sharp, it's countercultural, it's demanding, and it's, in- it's intended to feel Radical. It's intended to feel radical. It's intended to sting. So here's what he says. He says, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Follow me. Again, imagine the scene. The man is walking up to Jesus. He's getting in the boat with his disciples. And he's coming up to him. Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm in. I like this. I want to follow you. I see who you are. I want, I want to be about this, but, but first. And that, that word first, it's in the text. It's a, it's a really important word because it's a statement of priority. It's let, let me first. First, let me take care of this most important thing to me. So the desire to honor your parents or the desire to honor cultural expectations or familial kind of expectations isn't inherently bad, but for this man, it became a priority. What matters most is that a kind of like, do this thing with my family? What was he wanting through that? There's a lot of potential kind of like economic gains that would be had if he stayed and kind of was there through the burial of his father, whether his father wasn't dead or was dead, but there was a sense of gaining an inheritance, what that would mean. There's also the sense of just kind of familial acceptance and broader cultural acceptance to kind of like leave your family and go do a new thing. Like that happens all the time in kind of 21st century society. Like I'm from Kansas City, my family's in Kansas City, I'm in Denver, and nobody thought like, what the heck, did you abandon your family in Kansas City? Like it's okay in our culture to think about, hey, we have a globalized society, the idea of moving to a different city when we can Zoom and visit and fly doesn't feel like a big deal. In their culture, it was a really big deal. It was a really big deal to say, I'm going to be leaving as a, as a grown child with adult parents or older elderly parents to leave your family would have had massive social stigma. And Jesus says, no. If you want to follow me, come now. And kind of puts him in this like line of demarcation, this, this kind of line in the sand moment, a watershed moment. Who's going to be first? What's going to be first? Familial acceptance, cultural acceptance, fitting in with your peers, following through the expectations of society, living the the way that everybody around you has always lived and the way your family expects you to live and your friends expect you to live and the sort of idea of where you're going to get economic long-term stability, where you're going to get that from. Are you going to go the course of the society around you or will you trust me and follow me? It's an issue of priority. 
And I think this is a really important issue for us because as Christians in the 21st century in the Western world, there is a sense that we can add Jesus on to our vision for the good life. You can pursue the exact same life as everybody around you who doesn't know God, who doesn't walk with Jesus, who doesn't follow his way of life. And the idea is we can sprinkle a little Jesus on. It can add a little flavor, a little joy. It helps us with sort of this religious longing, this sort of spiritual kind of like echoes of God's voice. We can kind of assuage those in ways. We can feel kind of connected to community. We can feel guilt and shame, kind of like have these tastes of healing. But the sort of all or nothing Choose this day whom you will serve, Jesus or the world. That sort of stark line in the sand moment is something that I think is really hard for us to swallow. Because if I were to ask you, take an honest look at your life, at your life, and you tell me, not out loud, you tell yourself maybe, what's first in your life? What's first? Whatever's first might not be inherently bad, but I want you to sit on that for a second. What's first? Career is first. Recreation is first. Distraction, comfort, the next restaurant. Family is first. That's what's happening in this passage to some degree. Family is first. Build your family, your approval of your parents or the the family you're trying to build? What's first? What I think is, is powerful about this passage is the two motivations that are kind of tripping, tripping these would be disciples up are around security, comfort, and approval. And if I were to summarize the things that most of us spend our energy and invest our energy trying to gain in this life, if you were to look at the the deep kind of soul level motivation for why we do what we do, it's often for security, for comfort, and for approval. And Jesus says, if you wanna follow me, you gotta let that stuff die. You gotta let it die because it's, it's the things that, that the dead people care about. Did you catch that in the passage? It says, leave the dead to bury the dead. It's one of the first passages where Jesus is gonna kind of bring in this concept of a spiritual death. That, that people who are not walking as human beings were designed to walk, which is in relationship with God, following the, the wisdom of God for life. That's what humans were supposed to do. In relationship with him, abiding in his love, following his wisdom for life, right? He's the creator king. He's the Lord. He's designed us. He's called us. And he says, walk with me, know my love, and reflect my glory in all of life. And when we say no to that, which the Bible calls sin, we enter into this separation from the God of life, and this is a death. And so humanity, as it were, is kind of a group of living dead people where we are trying to kind of squeeze out life, but in a very kind of like, you know, zombie-esque way. Like we're, we're trying to have this really abundant life in a system that can't give life. We're like investing our energy in a system and according to a paradigm that cannot give life. And Jesus is saying that whole system is dead. It's a dead system. 
It's a dead system. So the, the kind of cultural kind of narrative in Denver, which has beautiful things about it, right? As we taste and see the beauty of God and all of creation and enjoy the world and the good gifts of God. There's nothing inherently wrong about it. But when you actually put that stuff above God, when you put building whatever vision of life you have above actually walking with him, spending time with him, trusting him, following his wisdom, watching him live and learn, letting him speak into your life and guide you and lead you. When you choose, I'm gonna prioritize the sort of vision, Denver vision of the good life. This is what kind of got humanity off on the wrong foot in the first place. We're gonna choose our own adventure. And Jesus says that is a system for dead people. And so the question we have to ask is if we're asking like, what am I putting first? What am I kind of putting first in my life is, is more to the point, this question is, what is standing in the way of you following Jesus with all of your heart? What's standing in the way of you following Jesus with all of your heart? And I think that answer could go a number of ways. There could be pride you're hanging on to that's making you not want to confess sin that you know is holding you back. There could be ambitions that you're just are consuming your mind. It's like the next house project or the next, again, vacation or the next recreation or just building security or just getting through things at work and just kind of the obsessiveness with all of the sort of thorns and thistles of this world, trying your best to sort of achieve and forge your way through it. And that sort of consumption, that all-consuming obsession has squeezed Jesus out. It's back to the parable of the seeds where the seed falls on the ground and it begins to grow, but the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches like thorns just begin to choke it. And so what are those for you? Because Jesus says you've got to let it go. There are things that you must surrender if you want to experience the life that Jesus offers. And that's, I think, the beautiful aspect about this is that what Jesus is calling us to is actually life. Even the idea that he says, let the dead bury the dead, is inherently saying there's, there's a way to life. There is an abundant life. There is a joyful life that Jesus is offering, and you gotta let the dead system go to actually lean into, with trust and obedience, Jesus' way to life. And that's the last passage here is the call. Do you actually hear the call to joyfully surrender? To joyfully surrender. I think often of these two passages uh, in the Gospels. Uh, one is where there's a, a rich man who's following Jesus, and he says, Lord, mu- what must I do to inherit the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says, you know, you've heard the commandments. And he says, well, I followed the commandments. He says, well, one thing, one thing you lack. Go and sell everything you have. Give the money to the poor and come follow me. And it says the man went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. That he actually thought that joy was found in the things he could acquire and accumulate in life. And so Jesus saying you're going to have to surrender these things led him feeling sorrowful. Why? Because he didn't believe that Jesus was giving, offering him something better. Whereas in contrast, I think about the parable Jesus speaks of in Matthew chapter 13, which says this. And this is Matthew 13, 44. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells everything that he has and buys the field. And I love that line, in his joy. So it's this man who's spent his whole life 
acquiring things and, and building an estate and, and gaining possessions and continuing to kind of build his life. And, and he's going and he's got this life that he's built. He's spent years and energy and effort. He was educated and he worked day in and day out and he built his family and built his estate and built this land and acquired all of these things. And he has this life that he's been living and trying to build. And then he's going one day and he stumbles on a field and he like trips over a little bit of dirt and he notices something and he, and he kind of starts scooping it up and he realizes there's a treasure. And he, and he uncovers the treasure and he realizes the value of the treasure. And it's like his heart is just exploding. You feel the heart beating. Like, he's just like, this is the most valuable thing I've ever seen in my life. And so he covers it up, semi-deceitful, but it's not the point of the story. <laughs> and, uh, and he runs off and he joyfully sells everything he had spent his whole life building. Joyfully. Let's it all go. The estate's gone. It's all gone. Everything I have is gone. Because I'm going to take this money, I'm going to buy this field because what I found in this field, the treasure has incomparable value. And that's what we have to see in Jesus. He says the kingdom of heaven is like that. The life that Jesus has come to offer is so beautiful. It's so abundant and so in the grain of your design for living as a human being that it ought to make you say, I will leave anything to follow Jesus to inherit that kind of experience of life and joy and abundance that Jesus offers. Now, there's an old writer named Thomas Chalmers who wrote an essay called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And here's what he says. This is the opening line of this kind of essay book. He says, there are two ways, it's archaic language, so slow down with me. There are two ways in which a practical moralist may attempt to displace from the human heart's heart its love of the world. So if you want to get the love of the things of this world out of your heart, there, there are two ways you could go about it. Either by a demonstration of the world's vanity, so as that the heart shall be prevailed upon simply to withdraw its regards from an object that's not worthy of it. In other words, if you just show like, hey, look, living for family doesn't satisfy you. Living for possessions won't satisfy you. Living for approval won't satisfy you. We could try our best to like prove to you that living for the things of this world won't satisfy you. That's one way to try to like not ache for those things anymore. Or, or, this is the other way, by setting forth another object, even God, as more worthy of its attachment, so that the heart shall be prevailed upon, not to resign an old affection, not to say, I guess I have to give this up, but I don't really want to, which shall have nothing to succeed it, but to exchange an old affection for a new one. My purpose in this essay is to show that from the constitution of our nature, from the very fabric of our design, the former method, the method of saying, hey, look, this stuff is worthless, it won't give you anything, is altogether incompetent and ineffectual, and that the latter method will alone suffice for the rescue and recovery of the heart from the wrong affection that domineers over it. Follow? <laughs> kind of. Uh, it's, it's just this. You are made to chase after what you think is going to give you joy. You're made to. And we could try all day to prove to you that certain things in life won't give you joy. But unless you find a superior affection, if you, unless you find something that's more compelling, more beautiful, more inviting, 
you will never be able to just sort of like say no to the things you want. Ultimately, you have to want something else more. And that's what Jesus has come to show us. He's actually come to show us there's a better way. There's a more beautiful way. And he's inviting us into that. Not in order to achieve his love, not in order to earn something. That's the danger of the word cost. We're not like buying something to say, I paid the price, now I deserve it. That's the beauty of the gospel. Is that this is a God who actually saw and valued and loved you. And just like we are learning that you make sacrifices to pursue the things you love, this is exactly what God has done for us. He made you. He loves you. He designed you. He designed your personality and your wiring and your gifts and your weaknesses. And he said you're beautiful and good. He designed you with glory. And in his love for you, he sacrificed his life. Jesus laid down his life for you as an expression of this covenantal love. So that our response to Jesus isn't one of like, I guess Jesus is like a really kind of like demanding king. It's actually a response of fidelity and loyalty to the one who laid down his life for us. When I think about the cost of discipleship, I, you know, it's, people be like, man, is Jesus really that demanding? And the reality is, yes. But it's, it's a demand that's like laid on this call to covenant commitment. Like if you're entering into a marriage and you're like, man, you want me to be faithful to you forever? That's kind of demanding. Like you mean I have to say no to all of these other potential spouses or potential love interests? I can't pursue all of them? Yeah, that's what covenant love is. It's this loyalty. It's this fidelity. It's saying you're first. Everything else, one of my favorite lines in the Song of Solomon talks about a lily among the thorns is my love. It's saying like that sort of affection you have for your spouse is like a lily among the thorns. Like it's incomparable. And that's what Jesus is calling for us. If you want to follow me, put me first. I am a lily among the thorns. I am the one your heart was made for. Forsake these other things. Surrender them, not out of an obligation or a duty, but do it for the joy of the life that Jesus offers in response to the love that he's shown us. Let's pray. Um, Jesus, we need you this morning. Um, There are things in my heart that I know are competing for my affection. There are desires, there are comforts, there are ambitions, there are longings that I know are competing for my affection, I imagine that for every person in this room. And so would you, Jesus, today, would you, through your Holy Spirit, shine light on those areas. Convict us. Convict us of the things we're putting first and help us to surrender those. To actually offer those up to you with open hands and say, Jesus, what do you want me to do? What do you need me to let go of? What, what do I need to leave behind? What do I need to let die? What ambitions and passions and striving do I need to let die in order to follow you with all my heart? And would you convict us, but also do it by showing us the beauty of your love. In Christ's name, amen. 
Thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and for the joy of all people. If you enjoyed this, make sure you share it with someone. We'd also love to hear from you on social media. Find us with at Park Church Denver. Lastly, more resources and info are available online at parkchurch.org. Peace and love.